Good morning. Scripture this morning comes from Mark 15, verses 16 through 20, and verse 38. The soldiers led Jesus away into the, pla- into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the word of the Lord for us. Good morning. What a joy it is to gather in worship and to, to fellowship with one another. So thank you for being here today. Uh, just one housekeeping item, which is sort of a clarification of an announcement that Jeremy made. We have an infant nursery and we have a toddler nursery. The toddler nursery is staffed. So we have um, Christy is back there this morning, and that, that is for kids that are ones and twos, toddler age. Our infant nursery, which is just off the sanctuary here for birth through 12 months, is an unstaffed situation. And so you're welcome to take your little one in there if they need some extra care. But we don't actually have a dedicated staff person in there for you to check your child in. So I wanted to just bring some clarification there. Let's see. It is, boy, it's the middle of summer, isn't it? Uh, July 11th, 2021. 2021. (laughs) And the reason, of course, that it's 2021 is that 2021 years ago, all of human history changed. That, that there was this singular event that happened that changed all of, all of life and all of the human experience, right? Because you think of ancient history and why that is the one that's it's counting down. 4,000 B.C., 3,000 B.C., 2,000 B.C., 1,000 B.C., Right? And modern history, we're, we're counting up the year 70, 100, 200, 300, right? Then we get to the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 19th, 20th, 21st century. Why? And it all hinges, of course, on Jesus. All of human history hinges on Jesus. Everything is dated as 
before Jesus or after Jesus and in relationship to him. His arrival, his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death by crucifixion, his glorious resurrection, everything hinges on this event, this person, our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we are going to conclude our study in the Gospel of Mark, the remarkable uh, truth, the remarkable Son of God, right? So I'll just remind us that we started with John the Baptist. He pointed the way to Jesus. He was, he was preparing the way for the Messiah. We considered then how Jesus called 12 men to be his sort of core group of disciples and followers and sent them out on mission for him. That Jesus healed those who were sick. He taught with great parables. He had remarkable power to feed thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves of bread. We were encouraged to become like children. To become like children. Oh, and let's not forget, we were also encouraged to become like figs. (laughs) To become like figs. And then, of course, last week... I shared this great and glorious news that Jesus is going to come again, that Jesus will return. And so for this morning, we're going to be in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus, the blameless Lamb of God, is sentenced to death and death by crucifixion. So really, this is one of the most dramatic scenes in all of Scripture. And again, all of human history has been impacted by Jesus. He was a remarkable teacher. He was a remarkable healer and leader and friend. He was a remarkable forgiver. He had remarkable strength and remarkable purity and remarkable compassion. But if there's one place where he's truly remarkable, it is here at the cross that he is our remarkable savior. Can I get an amen? That Jesus is the remarkable Savior. That means he took our place. That he took our punishment. That he came to earth in order to give his life for ours. That is what we're going to talk about today. So let me introduce myself. I'm John. Just blessed and privileged and honored uh, to serve as pastor here at MCA. I pray that today through our time together, your heart grows stronger and your faith grows deeper. So what I'd like to do is let's look at the hours leading up to the crucifixion event. So turn in your Bibles to actually let's go to chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark. We don't have time to go through every single verse, of course. Uh, That's that's quite a long uh, chapter. Let's see, there are 72 verses in in chapter 14. But uh, what happens is Jesus knows that this is coming and he's, he's in the garden and he's praying When a mob comes to arrest him, led by Judas, the betrayer. So let's start at verse 43. So we're in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 43. It says, just as he was speaking, that's referring to Jesus. Judas, one of the 12 appeared with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Now, the only Jews who were legally allowed to have weapons were part of the temple police. 
That means that this is who this was. These were the men who came to the garden. They, they, they grabbed Jesus, they bound him, and then they led him to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. He's a, he's a Jewish religious leader. But it also sort of served as the police station. <laughs> so, so imagine this scene. It's, it's sort of like the, the police station. There, there would have been some barracks and prison cells. I mean, not like what we know in our justice system, but so, some rudimentary uh, holding facilities there. We, we know something uh, sort of it, based on archaeological digs that have found facilities just like this. Um, these are sort of ancient cisterns where prisoners could be placed. Dark, lonely. This was after midnight, by the way. So this is in the wee hours of the morning, and Jesus is most likely placed in one of these holding cells. Also, when all of this goes down, and Jesus, the remarkable leader, is seized and bound and, and dragged off and arrested, his disciples, they just take off. They, they just leave. Despite what they've said, I'll never disown you. I'll never leave you. If we look there, chapter 14, verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. <laughs> they, they got out of town. They made themselves sparse. Peter, of course, denies him three times. He begins to even curse and swear. He doesn't know this fellow Galilean. So what happens is, in the dead of night, word is sent out to the 23 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. They're summoned from their beds, essentially, to conduct this hasty trial for this rabble-rouser from Nazareth. So this is the scene. Jesus has been arrested. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish kind of ruling council, they're, they're hey, get up, it's time, to, it's time to make this happen. We're going to get him. They bring in false witnesses. Because, of course, there was no true evidence against him. No crimes had he committed. They bring in false witnesses who just pour out lies about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And Jesus remains silent. Except for saying that he was indeed the Son of God. So if we look at verse 61, we're in Mark chapter 14. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Let's keep reading there. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So Caiaphas and company, they charged Jesus with blasphemy. They declare him guilty and they sentence him and it is death. There's only one problem. This Jewish court, they didn't have the authority or the power to sentence someone to death. <laughs> only the Romans could do that. And so they've, they've gotten their whole group together in this hasty midnight trial. Get up, get out of bed, we're going to do this. And they've brought in liars who told untruths about Jesus. Here's our ruling. He's guilty. He should die. But they don't have the power to do that. So early the next morning, Jesus is taken to Pilate. Now, Pilate would have been the Roman governor. So this is into the first verses of chapter 15. He, he asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus basically says, you said it. 
So then, again, the Jews, they just start flinging accusations against Jesus. But again, in the face of such accusations, Jesus doesn't say another word. So as we're studying this remarkable Savior today, the crucifixion of our Lord, this just jumps out at us. We can't deny this, that Jesus was silent. He's an innocent man, falsely accused. He'd done no wrong. These lies are being told about him, and yet he did not feel compelled to stand up for himself. Now, remember, Pilate was a secular leader. So all they have to do with with Pilate is they have to just convince him that Jesus is a public menace. Right In the Jewish court, it was blasphemy. In the Jewish court, it was, it was sort of a, a, a spiritual sin that he had committed worthy of death. But with, with the Roman leader, they just need to convince him that Jesus is a threat. Hey, this is a guy, he's threatening violence against the Roman Empire. So let's look in chapter 15, starting at verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. You know, the right to a fair trial, it's a, it's a cherished American freedom. <laughs> like the cowboy, he lived in the Wild West. He was arrested for stealing horses. Well, he pleads not guilty. The judge says, okay, well, you got to go to trial. In fact, I'll give you your choice. You can face a panel of three judges or a a jury of 12 of your peers. Cowboy says, peers, what do you mean? He said, I mean, people like you. So I'll take the judges. I don't want horse thieves judging me. Jesus didn't try to defend himself. In fact, as odd and strange, as confusing as that might be to us and our sort of American sensibilities we realize that it's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So if we look at Isaiah 53, 7, it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. This is a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah says. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I'm not sure how many of you have been a part of a sheep shearing day. I have. My grandfather raised sheep. <laughs> and the thing about a sheep is it's that, that, that wool is sort of its strength and glory. And then you shear it off and all of a sudden it just looks puny and naked and scrawny and fragile and frail. That's a picture of Jesus. That that he endured the indignity and the shame. As we heard, John read the scriptures for us. He was tortured. He was crucified. And he did it all without speaking up in his defense. (laughs) Wow, is there something powerful here for you and I today, friend? Is there, is there something here that we could learn from when we're accused, when we're stripped of our dignity, when people attack us or slander us? Do we stand up for ourselves? Is our self-respect the priority and at a premium? Do we just make it our mission? I'm going to set them right. Come at me. I'm going to come at you. 
Or will we be like Jesus? Will we operate with humility, with silence, knowing that one day God's going to set it all right? One day God will vindicate. Let's not be so quick to speak up on our own defense when our Lord Jesus showed us, gave us the example. Listen, he didn't receive a fair trial. This is very obvious and clear. In fact, what's really interesting, I found this in my studies, when the nation of Israel became, well, a nation again, you know, in 1948, they established a Supreme Court. Moshe Smoira was the first president of the Israeli Supreme Court. The first cases that were filed in the Israeli Supreme Court, you can guess what it was. Let's have a retrial for Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> those, were, those were some of the first cases submitted to the Supreme Israeli Court. Um, they said they no longer, they said they no longer had jurisdiction <laughs> over that, so they did not entertain that. But I don't want us to miss this point this morning, that our remarkable Savior was silent. That, that he faced the cross, not because of anything he had done wrong, but actually because of what we had done wrong. So in addition to Jesus being silent, Jesus, we realize, was our substitute. Jesus was our substitute. Pilate wanted to actually release Jesus. So, so again, he's the secular leader. He's the, he's the Roman leader. All they have to do is tip him off to, this guy's going to create violence. He's going to be a threat to the empire somehow. Pilate doesn't see that. He doesn't believe that. He just wants to set Jesus free. So in fact, Pilate came up with a great plan. It's Passover. It's a custom to release a prisoner, even one who's guilty. After all, isn't Passover all about averting judgment? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, th this guy's a Roman leader, but he's like, he, he understands something of the Jewish culture. He, he's there. He's, he's in command of them. Isn't Passover all about averting judgment? You know, you know when, when, when the angel saw the blood on the doorposts the, the, of the Passover lamb in Egypt, like he passed over it. He forgave. Uh, a judgment was averted. The firstborn lived on. And, and so Pilate, in his plan, is, well, he asks if he can release Jesus as this sort of Passover pardon. But for the religious leaders, they were not going to have that. They were not going to have Jesus. They're, they're hard-earned. You know, I didn't get up in the middle of the night and create this false accusation trial to see it go to waste. So they... That what they did, actually, there's a crowd of people, and the scriptures tell us they basically positioned spies throughout the crowd who kind of started to elbow the person next to them and go, nah, don't let Jesus go. Jesus, we should crucify him, don't you think? So people all throughout the crowd began to kind of rile them up, saying, we should crucify Jesus, don't let him go. Wait, isn't, hey, isn't Barabbas in there? Yeah, you're going to let someone go? Let Barabbas go. Let him go free. Now, Barabbas was part of an insurrection, meaning he was not a supporter of the Roman Empire. He had committed murder in the process of revolting and rioting against them. And so there was indeed a Roman cross that was waiting for Barabbas. But wow, in the, the last moment, Barabbas finds himself walking away free. 
he hears that that cross that's for him, he's not going to go to it, but Jesus is instead. Jesus is going to go there, and he is going to be set free. I just have to be honest with you. And, and for, for many of you, for most of you, the, these stories, the, this powerful and fascinating truth of, of Jesus enduring the cross, it's something you've heard from an early age. I've never liked Barabbas. I don't know about you. I've never, ever liked Barabbas. I, 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 there's something that just perturbs me about this guy, so brash, so bold, right? He's just anti-Roman to the core. He's just like a leader of riots. He's, he's killed people in the process. He knows his just reward is coming. And he seems like the kind of guy who doesn't really care. I've never liked Barabbas. And I've always been a little angry about the fact that it's a guy like him who they open the prison doors. They take off the shackles and they go... Yeah, we're choosing to crucify Jesus. You can go free. He walks away scot-free. When I read these, these, these stories, it's like I want the crowd to say, yeah, let Jesus go. Hey, Pilate, that's a good idea. Release Jesus. Crucify Barabbas. But that's the exact opposite of what they did. They call out with loud voices, the scriptures say. Release Barabbas. Jesus, crucify him. Crucify him. And then I look inside myself and I'm like, you know, maybe part of the reason that I don't like Barabbas is just the absolute truth that I am Barabbas. <laughs> that, that that's me. That it's like that, that my, my punishment is waiting for me and I'm, I'm deserving of it. And yet the gate is just swung wide open. You get to go scot-free even though you've done wrong. Maybe you're like Barabbas too. And some of you are like, well, (laughs) you're in your Sunday best. You're sitting in a padded seat in air-conditioned church building. I'm not like Barabbas. I've never murdered anyone. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, if you are angry enough at a person to kill them, you are guilty of murder. And all of a sudden you realize right where you are, well, I've been, (laughs) I've been that mad. So I guess I am a murderer. I guess I have broken God's laws and God's standards. I guess there should be a punishment for the wrong that I've done. We're as guilty as Barabbas. (laughs) Barabbas deserved death, and yet Jesus became his substitute. And you don't even have to understand anything about the Bible to understand what a substitute is, right? When your coach says, go out onto the basketball court, tell Stacy that you're going in for her, and you go onto the court, and Stacy comes off the court, you're her substitute, right? We deserve to suffer for the wrongs that we have done. But Christ came into the game <laughs> and tells us that we get to sit on the bench of grace. He became our substitute. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. 
and his wounds were many. And I'll try not to get too gory and too graphic this morning. I know we have little ears with us. And really, I'd like to know what happened to Barabbas. (laughs) I wonder, what happened in that guy's life? When he was set free and when the innocent guy, and again, uh, and if you stay for our Sunday school, you'll look at Matthew's account of, of Pilate and how he says, this guy's done nothing wrong. I mean, he says this publicly. It's like there's, I, there's nothing that this person has done wrong. What happened with Barabbas? Like, like, did he just weep as Jesus took the flogging and the beating and the punishment that he knew was for him? Did he maybe follow the crowds up to Calvary and, and watch as Jesus was crucified? Did, did he call out to Jesus on the cross and say, thank you. That should have been me, but it's you. Thank you. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how Barabbas responded. But we know the rest of Jesus' story. We know what Jesus did. Regardless of what Barabbas did, you and I should be the ones that look at the cross. That cry out, thank you. That should have been me, but thank you, Jesus, that you are the remarkable Savior. And so since Jesus is our substitute, since his life was given for all humanity, it was he who suffered. We talked about Jesus being silent. We talked about Jesus being our substitute Let's not miss the fact that Jesus suffered. This was a gruesome and agonizing death. He suffered tremendously. Before he even reached the cross, of course, he he suffered that emotional loss of all of his people leaving him. Fleeing, saying, I've never heard of that guy. I don't know that guy. Nope, he's not my friend. He's not my rabbi. He's not my leader. And then he faced unspeakable torture at the hands of Roman soldiers. So we're in chapter 15 now, and in verse 15 it says that Jesus was flogged. Typically this was performed by a squad of three soldiers. The prisoner would have been stripped, his hands tied above his head to maybe a a ring on a wooden post. Two soldiers on each side would have had a flagrum in their hands. This was a a leather whip that would have had... um, you know, nine strips of leather and each of those maybe having bits of bone or, or stones or, or metal embedded in each one. Dr. C. Truman Davis, he's a physician who studied the medical aspects of crucifixion. He published this in his report about the flogging of Jesus. He says, the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. There are accounts in history of Roman soldiers flogging prisoners to death. In fact, part of the point of flogging prior to crucifixion was let's bring this person as near to death as possible so that we don't have to wait as long on the actual crucifixion. Let's bring them near the point of death so that our wait isn't very long, so that we can enjoy the entertainment of the agonizing 
crucifixion itself that would be potentially be shortened. And for some of us, we, we've seen uh, the Passion of the Christ film, and we, we, we have those, those very graphic images in our mind, but really no movie could ever show the true horror of what happened to Christ. After his flogging, he was taken inside the fortress. There was an entire company of Roman soldiers that just continued to torture him. It was there that they put the robe on his wounded back, that they twisted together a crown of thorns that they crushed into his head. It was there that they blindfolded him and just began to strike him repeatedly over and over and over with their fists, with a club. In fact, at the end of that beating, Jesus was unrecognizable. Isaiah 52, 14 says, There were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And so our remarkable Savior, bloodied, battered, beaten, unrecognizable, was led out to be crucified, Mark says in verse 20. Crucifixion would have been just the most brutal form of death imaginable. It, it was designed. Think about this. Th- this, this method of, of death was designed to inflict maximum pain. It was reserved only for the worst of criminals. It was the harshest form of capital punishment in the ancient world. I think I shared this a few weeks ago, but we only have in our English vocabulary the word excruciating because of this practice of crucifixion. The arms would have been stretched as far as they possibly could go and then nails driven into the wrists to keep him on the cross. Which means the weight of the body would put strain on those joints, on the arms, on the shoulders. Elbows would dislocate. Shoulders would separate. The feet, of course, were also nailed. So when you're in that position, here's the the reality. In order to draw a breath, in order to get some relief on the ribs and the upper body, in order to inhale a life-giving burst of oxygen, you've got to stand up. You've got to put the full weight of your body on your feet and push upward just to get a gasp of breath, which would have caused just unimaginable pain to your feet, to your legs, to your lower body. And so in this way... This practice of crucifixion ensured that the victim suffered and suffered greatly. So it would have been this series of of gasping for a breath of air while reeling from unthinkable agony. And of course, again, all of this after the condemned man has been flogged nearly to the point of death. There was a poem that was written about the suffering of Jesus. It was written in the Middle Ages. In the 18th century, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach put it to music. He used this haunting minor key to accompany these words. Oh, sacred head, now wounded. 
with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. The silence of Jesus, Jesus our substitute, the suffering of Jesus. Listen, it was all part of God's plan. As as disturbing as this is, as, as heavy as this is for us to study and teach this morning, we must recognize this was all part of God's master plan to save a people that had turned from him. For you and I, who who, by our own sin have separated ourselves from a holy and loving creator God. And then when Jesus died, according to verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn. It was torn in two and it was torn from top to bottom. This is the holy of holies. This is the place where the, the... It represented the dwelling place of Yahweh, the one true God. And now it is available to all. Not just on one day of the year, not just to the high priest who is selected, but every single day by every single person. Jesus, the remarkable Savior, has made a way back to the Heavenly Father. He's made a way for flawed humanity to have access to a holy God. That's why this is good news. It's good news amidst just a terrible story. An awful, agonizing, gruesome story. It's good news. Why? Because this is the grace of God. The blood of our remarkable Savior poured out. The grace of God has come as a result of the cross. And then I want us to look at verse 39. There's a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He stood there in front of Jesus. He saw how he died. And he said, surely this man was the son of God. And the reason I want to point that out is, listen, even the unbelieving, the pagan, the guilty, the blood stained. This is one of the guys who had blood on his hands from the crucifixion. Even this sinner is changed in the presence of Christ, the remarkable Savior, the remarkable Son of God. And listen, each and every one of us can do the exact same thing. Each one of us has to pronounce a verdict based on that question that Pilate asked the crowd. What shall I do? He asked. What shall I do with the one you call King of the Jews? They said, crucify him. They said it vehemently. They shouted it. And I pray that you and I would choose very differently. That that we would choose him as Lord. That we wouldn't be ashamed to, to shout it and to declare it. Jesus, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, be Lord of my life. And then, of course, we can't end with Jesus dying and going into the grave because he rose. Because he didn't stay dead. Because he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose victorious on the third day that he is alive. He's coming soon in his full glory, right? We vocalized this last week. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So we can rely fully on his saving work on the cross. We can follow him. We can stay devoted and loyal to him no matter what comes our way. We can, in fact, join him in his mission, which is to redeem all of humanity. 
Jesus is the remarkable Son of God. He's the one that existed before all of creation. Jesus forgives the sin of all who turn to him. And so again, it's, it's the cross of Christ that has changed all of human history. Has it changed you? Let's pray. Oh, loving and gracious, compassionate, heavenly Father. We know from the scriptures your heart that you restore and embrace even the prodigal who who flees from you, who runs from you, who does wrong, and yet who humbles himself to return to you. And so, Lord, as we study the crucifixion this morning, this story of brutal agony, we see the good news that this is the grace of God poured out for flawed humanity. And so, Lord, would you help us to be like that Roman centurion, blood-stained hands, and yet this is the Son of God. That we would say today that you are the remarkable Savior and you have saved our souls. Not because of our goodness, not because of what we've done, but because of your grace. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for saving us. And then would you help us and empower us to live on mission for you, making much of you and sharing the life-giving power of Jesus with the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, John. Um, This actually, this concludes our series um, on the book of Mark. And we're actually planning to start uh, a new series uh, next week called The Game. So uh, take a minute and check out this video. This summer, an event so big the world will be watching. When you spend your whole life working, training, waiting for one moment. Everything comes down to this moment. Join us for a brand new sermon series that will encourage us to faithfully run the race God has set before us. Our training is in kingdom living, and our goal is seeking an eternal crown. So we keep running with perseverance and keep our eyes on Jesus. Through him, we have victory. The Games, coming to MCA Summer 2021. Uh, So we hope that you guys will plan to uh, come and uh, take that in. We're excited for that this summer. Uh, I'd invite you to stand as I read uh, our benediction. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Thank you for being with us.
I'll go with you.